So just uh, before I start, and so I don't forget, two, two resources that I will recommend to you, uh, since we don't have another space to do it, is Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt, and uh, What is the Gospel? A little gospel track that walks through uh, the gospel in four words. So this morning we're back in uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, the second half of the prologue, and... <clears throat> start off with something obvious, well, maybe not so obvious, but um, everybody wants a father's approval. While uh, it's true that no father is perfect, um, some are aloof, some are abusive, uh, some work too much, some work too little, but everyone has at least probably, most of us probably have a mix of, of both good and bad. That's what most fathers are. But anyone with a half-decent father, we all want his approval, don't we? You know, uh, I, I know that this can be hard for, for people to hear this who've had a very abusive relationship with one of their parents. Um, but, but hold on, I, I hope to show you uh, that there's a greater father's, there's a father who's greater, whose approval you should seek. If soldiers cry out for uh, a mother's love on the battlefield, they say, when they're dying. Um, but all of us want a father's well done. You know, but e even further on than that, uh, uh, a father's approval, we want a father's approval for who we are. Just to hear those words, I'm happy that you're my son. I'm so delighted that you're my daughter. I love you just the way you are. Those words validate us and give us confidence that we are loved in spite of our failures. If we're honest, it's hard for us to believe that God could love us approve of us. If we're honest, we've, we've all failed this week, haven't we? We've been selfish with our time. We've been judgmental of others. We have coveted what was not ours. And we ask, how can God be pleased with me? You know, if you're a skeptic in the room, uh, you might be saying, I knew it. You know, religion is all about daddy approval. You know, you guys, this religion has been invented because you just want a father's love. You have father hunger. Can I ask you a question if you're a skeptic in the room? What if it's not what you say? But what if your desire for a father's love is actually proof that there's a greater father and he is God? Last week, we looked at uh, the first part of the prologue, 1 through 8, and, and we saw that Jesus asserts some, or Mark asserts something about Jesus. Uh, do you remember what it is? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah and the Son of God. And, and Mark connects Jesus to the Old Testament prophets, right, that he's in line with the Old Testament prophets. And and so is John the Baptist. But, but Jesus isn't just in line with the Old Testament prophets as a mouthpiece for God, proclaiming everything that God wanted him to say. Jesus is not only in line with those prophets, he's greater than them. 
John says that about himself. There's going to come one after me who's mightier than I am. Look to him because he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's not just in line with them. He's greater than them. Now, in the second half of the prologue, Mark tells us something else about Jesus, and this will be our outline, that Jesus is the beloved son, the true Israel, and the real king. Jesus is the beloved son in verses 9 through 11. He's the true Israel, verses 12 through 13. He's the real king in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, the message of the gospel, which is good news, is to trust the king who lived in your place. The message of the gospel is to trust the king who lived in your place. Now, we're going to unpack that as we walk through the book of Mark. But one other important thing to note that I think Mark tells us right here at the beginning, we see the beginning of the good news, is that the message, who's the message about? Is it about us? Is it about you? No, the message is about someone else. The message is not God loves you the way you are, so start loving yourself and everything's going to be okay. The message is not about you at all. Mark tells us that there is someone God loves more than anyone else or anything else. And he's going to use that one to rescue the world by bringing his love. The message of the gospel is that God loves someone more than anything or anyone else, and he's going to use that person to bring his love to the world. So that one is the beloved son, the true Israel, and the real king. So trust the king who lived in your place. Now let's look at the passage, verses 9 through 11. Jesus is the beloved son. You'll notice how the scene shifts from, if you go back up to verse 8, John's talking he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And just like John, all of a sudden, here comes somebody. The scene shifts abruptly. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we see right away that Jesus just bursts onto the scene. A lot like Elijah and a lot like John the Baptist. You know, if you, if you read those passages... John the Baptist and Elijah just burst on the scene unannounced. There's no, there's no heritage given in Mark. There's no heritage given of Elijah and John the Baptist. They just show up, and here he is. And, and Mark goes from John's speech about the one greater being baptized by the Holy Spirit to Jesus being baptized. And he doesn't have any explanation there. There's no, there's no hint of embarrassment about Jesus being baptized. So that, that could go one of two ways, couldn't it? You, you could say, uh, well, then, you know, if John was baptizing for the repentance of sins, then Jesus must have been a sinner and need to repent of his sins. Or you could say, uh, or you could say something else. And the something else is, I think, why Jesus is being baptized. Jesus is being baptized because he is going to identify with his people. He's going to identify in their sin and failure, not that they, he has sin and failure of his own, but that he is going to enter into their sin and failure and take it on for himself while giving us sinners his righteousness. 
imputing righteousness to us. So one commentator says it this way. Without any explanation, John shifts from one scene to the other. If Jesus is being baptized, if Jesus is the Son of God, why is he being baptized? Well, maybe it's because baptism was often a sign of judgment. Perhaps Mark saw it as a willing acceptance by Jesus of the path of suffering that he must endure as Messiah. Jesus, we, we've, we've called this series the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's about Jesus, the suffering king. It's the story of the suffering king. And the way he suffers is to go to a bloody cross and die for the sins of the world and then rise again. And so it's possible that Mark is just, he's picturing that right away in his baptism. As, as baptism is a, is a picture of judgment, so Jesus is entering into judgment and coming out the other side. And what's there on the other side? As Messiah and Son of God, Jesus is not baptized for his own sin, his own need for repentance, but for his people's sin and failure. He's entering into it with them. He's identifying with his people. The suffering king is, is going to identify with his people through a bloody cross. And as the, as the narrative continues and, and, and Mark moves it forward into, you know, what is our verse 10, he says, when he was baptized, after he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so, so Mark moves it on in, in, in Mark in fashion, just really quickly, immediately, all of a sudden this happened, and, and he, he marks it off by three things. The heavens were torn, the spirit is seen, and the father is heard. The heavens are ripped back. It's, it's sort of like the, the curtain here, you know, they have plays during the week, and, and uh, there's, a, there's something going on behind the, the curtain before it's pulled open. There's a reality back there that, that, that is going to take place in, in drama form. And then when the curtains are pulled back, it's, it's, it's open for everyone to see. The reality is showing that, that there's something going on here. And I think Mark is saying there's a drama going on behind the scenes that not everyone can see. And God is, is rending the heavens, like Isaiah 64, 1 says. It says, rend the heavens and come down and, and provide justice into this world. And, and, and I think Mark is telling us is, as, as Jesus is being baptized, that there's a reality about to be seen that, that you can't see with human eyes, but have to be seen with spiritual eyes. Heaven is torn back, and, and in Mark's narrative, it's only Jesus that sees this. It's a call for God, like Isaiah 64, it's a call for God to do something, to save, to come, to enter into our history. Now is the time, and this happens at Jesus' baptism. There's a reality back there that, that can't be seen apart from spiritual eyes. The curtain is torn. 
You know, as we go forward into, into Mark in 1538, we see, we see this use of this word again. The only two times it's used in the book of Mark, uh, the curtain, as the heavens are torn apart, and then the curtain is torn after Jesus dies, representing a, a way back to God. It's super, it was a supernatural occurrence that the, in, in the temple, uh, the, the curtain was torn when Jesus breathed his last and was dead. And the centurion said, surely this is the son of God. There was a way coming back to God, the reality. This is how the heaven rea heavenly reality affects earthly reality. God comes into the mix. The drama is that God is coming in, and he's making a way back to himself. And the only way back to himself is through a suffering king. The heavens are torn. And what's behind that reality? Mark further tells us that after the heavens are torn, he sees the spirit descending, coming down, fluttering like a dove. It's coming down, and, you know, Isaiah tells us again in Isaiah 11, too, that uh, the Messiah will be endowed with spirit power. He, he says in Isaiah 11, too, there shall come forth from the shoot, from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. And the drama unfolds right behind the curtain of the heavens as they're torn apart. And it's the spirit coming down to dwell with the sun. It's, it's showing a, uh, an, an eternal relationship that has gone on. Is now the God-man will have that same relationship. The drama shows the spirit descending like a dove. You know, this was... Uh, there's not really anywhere else uh, where it talks about it relates the spirit and a dove uh, as imagery, uh, except um, in, in the Targum. And in my, you know, in, in some of my research, I, I don't read, I'm not, I'm trying to tell you, I don't read the Targum. I don't read ancient Hebrew literature for fun. Uh, but in the commentaries that I've read, uh, the Targum interprets Genesis 1-2 this way, that this, the spirit at the beginning of time, was fluttering like a dove over the void, right? He, he, he hovered, and, and the Targum says he fluttered like a dove over creation. And, and, and so if that is the case, if, if, if this is the connection that Mark is making, then, then God the Son and God the Spirit are coming together to making humanity whole again. Like he was at the beginning. He was, he was making humanity for himself. And, and, and now, since, since we humans have messed it all up and we've gone away from God, and as Isaiah says, and, and we've gone our own way, and now, now God is coming back into the mix, and through Jesus Christ, and endowment by the Holy Spirit, he's making it all new again. All he does in his incarnation, all Jesus does in his incarnation while he's on the earth, he does with the Holy Spirit. And it's always been that way. As God, the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son have always been interacting in perfect love, in perfect relationship. There's never been a time when they said a harsh word to each other. Can you imagine that? Married couples. Never a time. Can you imagine that, fathers, with your kids? There's, there's never been a time when, when the father was upset with the son. There, there's never a time where there was not perfect interaction and perfect love. 
dwelling together. And now the heavens are being torn back and we're able to see a little bit of what's going on here. So not only are the heavens torn and the spirit is seen, but the father is heard in verse 11. You can read with me. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I'm perfectly happy with you. I, I delight in you. I am your father. You are my son. And I delight in you. This, this passage is sort of a, a combination of Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. There are echoes of, of both of these passages in here. And if you have a, a Bible with cross-references, cross sorry, uh, you'll, you'll probably find them in, in your Bible. Uh, psalm 2 was an enthronement psalm of God's king coming to the throne. And here's what it says. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten. Jesus' baptism, God is saying, you are my son. Right here, the heavens are being torn back, and, and, and we're able to see that the Spirit is on Jesus, and God is pleased with him. And this is the king he was going to send. Isaiah 42, 1, uh, you know, this is one of those servant uh, passages in Isaiah, and, and he says this. So, so not only is he king enthroned, but there's, there's this passage in Isaiah about the servant, and he says, Behold, I send my servant. Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. It's like, it's like the Old Testament was just flowing through Peter as he told Mark what had happened. It's, my soul delights in you. So the king, who is also the servant, is being baptized on behalf of his people. And the Godhead is pleased with them. The Old Testament has no trouble with a suffering king. But if you read through Mark, I, I challenge you to do it. I'm not challenge. I, I encourage you to do it. I encourage you to read through the book of Mark. It'll probably take you around an hour, and you'll see that though the Old Testament has no problem with a suffering king, the disciples and the religious people really do. And I, I, wonder, I wonder what you think. You know, in our culture that does not experience a lot of suffering. We experience some, but, but, but not like other times in history. I wonder how you feel about a king who suffers. Do you think when someone suffers that possibly it has, it's their fault, they've done some sort of sin that has required some suffering for God to, to work out in their life? Not so with Jesus. You know, and Jesus, right throughout uh, the Markan account, is unrecognized as the suffering king. Sometimes people see him as the king. Sometimes people see him as, you know, a, a servant. Uh, some, sometimes people see him as the one that they want to, to use to, to bring their own idea of what a kingdom is. Uh, but rarely do they see it all come together. And when they do, there's still some confusion. And Jesus is often unrecognized as the suffering king. You know, in in the book of Mark, in uh, chapter 15, the, the Gentiles, they try 
and mock and crucify him as the king of Israel. In uh, 15.2, it says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You say so. In verse 9, Jesus, it says, And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? In verse 18, And they began to salute him, Hail, king of the Jews. They were striking him in the head with a reed, a crown of thorns. So, you know, they recognize him as the king, but it's ironic, isn't it? Aren't you the king of the Jews? If you're the king of the Jews, as the, the Jewish people said, come down and save yourself. And it's, it's all ironic. And, and I wonder, do you recognize Jesus as the suffering king who is also the only one who can save you from your sins? The only one who can save your friends from their sins, from the wrath of God that is to come in judgment. And Jesus ascends his throne as he hangs on the cross ironic recognition of him as king. The way he rules in his first advent is through suffering. Though he is not recognized for who he is, he is the king, and the king has been anointed to the work of Messiah, and and through an inbreaking of God into the world with the Spirit's endowment, and through the Father's approval, the, the true and better Adam is here. He's the beloved son. He's the real son. He's the one that that we were meant to be. The true and better Adam came to save the hell-bound man. This is the beloved son. We see the heavens torn back and we see what he's about to do. But not only is he the beloved son, he is also the true Israel. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus is the true Israel. And if you read the passage, you might say, I think that could be a stretch, Doug. If you're just reading Mark for the first time, would you really think that he is the true Israel? Well, let's just work through that a little bit, okay? So we see Jesus, you know, in this passage is tempted in the wilderness, right? The Spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. More than the temptation by Satan, who is not the main character here, uh, is we should recognize that the Spirit is the one that drives him out. As soon as he's baptized and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, he's actually controlled by the Spirit and driven out into the wilderness to be tested, to to be uh, tempted by Satan. It was a plan. This was a plan that God had. I just take a moment, I plan to do this, but just take a moment to talk about uh, suffering in your life. Do you think it is the plan of God for you to suffer in your suffering right now? Is it possible that the Spirit is driving you into this suffering that you may have so that you might depend on Him, so that He might save you, so that you might see Him as great? plan for Jesus was to become the great high priest, being tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. So here he is in the wilderness with Satan, the great accuser, 
And you can just mark down these references. But Genesis 3.1 and Zechariah 3.1 show in the Old Testament how, Genesis, or how Satan is the great accuser both of God and of God's people. Uh, you remember Genesis 3, don't you? That here, here is uh, Satan as a serpent in the, wilder, in the, in the Garden of Eden. And, and he is tempting Adam and Eve by saying, uh, did God really say? He, he's accusing God of not being good. In, in Zechariah 3, 1, the, um, the priest Joshua is being accused by Satan before God. And he has these filthy robes on and turban on. And, and the Satan is there accusing him and saying, how can you, how can you call this one righteous as a priest for your people, when he looks like this. Satan is a great accuser of God and his people. It's a reminder that there's a spiritual battle going on. There are two kingdoms here. There's, there's, a, there's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this is, this, is, this is a theme going throughout the Bible. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at, in battle. And finally here in Mark, the seed of the woman... The real seed of the woman shows up. He is here, the son of God, the true Israel. But I just want to give you five reasons why I think this, this passage, in line with the rest of Scripture, is telling us that Jesus is the true Israel. Number one is that God calls Israel his son. You can, you can read about it in Exodus 4 when God tells Moses to go before Pharaoh and, and say, let my son go that he may worship me. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. So God calls Israel his son. Number two is Israel is led out into, where are they led after the Exodus? Into the wilderness. By who? By God. He leads them out into the wilderness. So, so Israel is God's son. Israel is led into the wilderness. How long are they there? For, 40 years. And, and, and there's a, you know, there's echoes of this in the 40 days. That wasn't an accident. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. You know, a fourth thing is that Israel was tested in the wilderness. This was part of why God had them there. They were, they were being tested to, to, to prove not only their love for God, but whether they were the true Israel or not. Whether they were really God's son. The, and the last reason I, I think that we can say Jesus is the true Israel is because he passed the test. You know, it's not as explicit in Mark, but we know that Jesus comes out with flying colors. That's why in verses 14 and 15, he could say, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, I have overcome Satan, and I will overcome him. Jesus is the true Israel. He, he passed the test when the others failed. In the, in the garden, the, the, the first Adam fails. The true Adam doesn't. In the wilderness, Israel, the son, fails. The, the true Israel does not. And how does he do that? Matthew 4 tells us he passed the test by the use of the word. He, he quotes Deuteronomy right back to say Satan is quoting scripture, and he quotes Deuteronomy in context. And he passed the test by the use of the word, by the use of uh, scriptures, by knowing them, quoting them in context. 
And the second thing he does is, uh, the second way he passes the test uh, on this earth is Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that he passes the test on the earth by the use of prayer. Uh, you, you can read about it in Hebrews 5, 7, but it, it talks about him crying and groaning out to God for, for long periods of time so that he might pass the test. And, and notice he commits, his commitment is to use the means of grace that are available to you and me. He, he commits to use what's available to humans. He doesn't use his supernatural powers. He spoke the word and he prayed. I spoke the word and he prayed. This is one thing I long to see our church, you as individuals and our church collectively uh, use, not just in our temptations, uh, but, but use in our life. Day to day, the word and prayer, the word and prayer, these are just ordinary means of grace that God has for us to come before him, to pass the test, to know him, and having known him and loved him, to obey him. This is what, this is what Jesus does with his, uh, with his time here on this earth. And he's showing someone greater than John the Baptist is here. Someone that can go into the wilderness and pass the test. And he's, he's doing so with a with a with a, a, a Trinitarian love, an intertrinitarian love that that drives him on to do this for God's people. So Jesus is the beloved son. He is the true Israel. And lastly, Jesus is the real king. So trust Jesus who lived in your place. I can't say everything that needs to be said here in verse 15, okay? So it connects up and down. I'm going to talk about how it connects up, and then next week we'll talk about how it connects down to the, to the next passage. But Mark had just presented Jesus to be, uh, uh, presented Jesus as uh, greater than the prophets, greater than John the Baptist. Uh, I hope uh, we see that G Mark presented Jesus as the beloved son who is endowed with the Holy Spirit. And that he's the true Israel who, overca who overcame in the wilderness and was the true Adam, the true Israel. Since all this is true about Jesus then, don't, doesn't the call then follow to trust him? You know, after John was arrested, there's a shift in scene. Again, John was arrested. Oh, it looks like, it, it, it looks like maybe the worldly powers are winning. Jesus comes into Galilee Proclaiming the gospel of God. What's, what's the gospel of God? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news. The kingdom is entering through the bringing in of the message. right? So the, I, I think these verses, at least in, in this context, are telling us two things about Jesus' priorities. Uh, they're giving us a few priorities to with, uh, uphold here. That is, uh, we notice what Jesus' priority is, and we notice what, uh, we, we notice that, excuse me, that Jesus is the priority. Jesus' priorities, and that Jesus is the priority. So Jesus comes, and do you notice what he says in, in the verse? He's proclaiming. Have we seen that before? 
You remember, what did John the Baptist do when he came in the wilderness? Baptizing. What was he doing? He was, you can look back, and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And now Jesus, in line with that, is proclaiming. It's, it's, it's heralding. It's just telling the good news. This is Jesus' priority, is proclaiming the gospel. You know, before he heals, before he casts out any demons or unclean spirits, he preaches. This is, I think this is intentional in Mark. We'll see it again as, as the narrative moves forward in the gospel. Uh, but Jesus' priority is to preach. The deeds follow the creeds. Works are fruit of the gospel. And the gospel is the root. The gospel is the sort of the, the you know, the, the foundation. And, and, and the fruit of the gospel is, is, is sort of seen. But it, it, the gospel must come first. The belief in the gospel message, the repentance of sin must come first. And Mark wants his readers to know that Jesus went around proclaiming, just like John the Baptist and the Old Testament prophets. He was the mouthpiece for God. So I, I think that tells us something about how we should live as Christians, how we should be as a church, as a, as a group of Christians. What is our priority? We should be doing good works. We should be doing good works in the city. We should, we should care about all this, the sorts of social justice things that go on. But our, our priority first is the gospel. And, and the good works flow out of that. They just come out of that. And they come out naturally. And they, they come out differently for all of us, right? And, 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 and some people are, are really in, want to be involved in the home, with the homeless. And, and, and some people want to adopt. And some, um, some people want to get in into government and all these other kinds of things. And, and all of that's great, but the root of it all, the foundation of it all is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. This isn't a gospel against good works. It is that the good news comes first and good works flow out of it. And I think that's Jesus' priority. He, he, this is what the real king's priority is. And the second thing is that Jesus is the priority. His priority is proclaiming the gospel, uh, but Jesus himself is the priority. What is the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming? What is it? It is the good news of God. It's the good news about himself. God has come near in Jesus. He has identified with his people in their need for repentance. The Godhead has validated his person and his ministry, identifying him as the, the, the beloved son, the, the true Israel, and the true king. And his proclamation of the gospel is that the kingdom was near in him. His, his, his sermon was this, I'm the king. I lived in your place as the beloved son and the true Israel. So, so turn from what you're trusting in and trust me. Trust me. And he's about to go, in the next three years, he's, a, he's about to go on a road to Jerusalem and what he earned for a life of perfect righteousness was death on a cross. A death that you deserved and, and I deserved. 
a death that we earned, but the righteousness that he earned, he didn't keep for himself. He, he wanted to give it to his people. And this is the, the good news. And the message is turn and believe in him. He, he's sufficient to be your savior. And maybe your father never gave you approval. What the gospel says is, you can finally get approval from the one father that matters. That's God, the creator of all things. The one father that wants to give you approval. Maybe you're with us as a non-Christian. I just want you to know that Jesus made a way for you to be adopted by God and approved by him. God made that way himself through his son. And Jesus succeeded where Israel failed, where, where we failed. Our lack of, of, of real faith, our, our complaining, our despising of outsiders. Jesus lived a life that perfectly conformed to the Father's will. And he did that in your place. You see that? He was the, the beloved son. He was the true Israel. He lived a perfect life for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we'll end with this. It, here's what it says. If you, if you don't believe my interpretation of this passage, here's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ. So, so now I'm, I'm imploring you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Why? How? Because for our sake, God made Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That God took Jesus, sent him to the cross after he lived a perfect life, and he made him to be sin for us. Your sin, the sin that you committed this week, my sins. He put those sins on Jesus. And Jesus took the wrath so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that God would impute to you righteousness, so that when you come to Jesus and repent of your sins, Jesus, God looks at you and sees Jesus' own righteousness. He, he doesn't see your sin. You've repented, you've turned to him. He sees Jesus' righteousness, and he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Does that sound like blasphemy to you? How can God love me the way I am? Because of Jesus. Because he took your place as the son, as Israel. He, he took your place as he's the king who gave up his life for you. How can it be? That God would give up his only son for us. 
So the, the greatest thing, Christian, that the greatest offense you can do to God is to doubt his love for you. John Owen talks about this in his book called The Communion with God, and, and he implores the reader, don't doubt his love for you. Because of Jesus, he really does love for you. He really does have a love for you. And if you're not a Christian, I, I would love to talk to you afterwards or talk to somebody else in, in the congregation. If you're not a Christian, God, God did this for people like you. You can turn to him and be saved. There's no discrimination. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. There's no one beyond saving. God can do it, and he wants to do it in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the message about Jesus, the message of the gospel. Jesus is the beloved son, the true Israel, the king. Will you turn to him? And trust him because he lived a life in your place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this gospel message. I thank you for Jesus Christ who lived in our place. I pray that we would believe the truth about this. That Jesus lived for us and died for us but he rose again. I pray this would be a reality in our, uh, our understanding, in, in our own personal lives, that it, this isn't like abstract, that he died for my particular sin. He died in my place. That you are alive forevermore, that you are the true king, ascended to the Father's right hand, and that you will come again. So I pray even now as we as we prepare to take communion, that our hearts would be knitted in your love for each other. Help us, Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? 